The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells Book One The Coming of the Martians Chapter Seven How I Reached Home Thank you for joining us here at Public Domain Playhouse for our rendition of the classic H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds, so popular it's never actually gone out of print. This is our particular little homage to the great H.G. Wells. If you were with us last time, you realized that Public Domain Playhouse is a cross between a podcast and an ebook because I do actually read here eventually, and a teleplay, which is probably the most along the lines of what this actually sounds like. To me, it's like one of those old radio dramas where you get music and sound effects. So if you're interested in being enthralled as well as hearing one of the classics, you're in the right place. My name's Bart. I'm your narrator and guide. I enjoy reading to people. I hope you enjoy listening. One of the veins of keeping this in the format of a podcast, though, is that we kind of take a look at these works of literary antiquity to try and determine why these things are still part of our talk today. Everybody knows what War of the Worlds is. Of course, it doesn't hurt that it's had countless TV, radio, and movie adaptations, and it's created all kinds of spin-offs. Wells was actually the grandfather of science fiction. He was writing these things way before anybody else ever was. Definitely ahead of his time. Last time we kind of took a look at his personal life, which was racked from beginning to end, He was quite the romantic. He enjoyed getting about, so the ladies must have loved Wells. Plus, being rich and famous didn't hurt either. He built homes in different places for different wives around the world at different times. And it all started with him marrying his cousin when he was young. He got around. I think that could actually be applicable when we're talking about H.G. Wells. Today, we're actually going to take a look at H.G. Wells, the artist, and H.G. Wells, the writer. Did you know that one of the ways that Wells expressed himself was through drawings and sketches? One common location for his drawings and sketches were end papers and title pages of his own diaries, and they covered a wide variety of topics, from political commentary to his feelings towards his literary contemporaries and his current romantic interests. Kind of sounds like he would have been great at podcasting himself, Wells. Wells was. He liked to write about all the juicy details as well. During his marriage to Amy Catherine, whom he nicknamed Jane, he drew a considerable number of pictures. Many of these were overt comments on their marriage. During this period, he called these pictures Pichuas. P-I-C-S-H-U-A-S. Pichuas. These pictures have been the topic of study by Wells scholars for many years. And in 2006, a book was published on the subject. Now, Wells, as a writer, some of his earliest novels were called scientific romances of the time. He invented the theme. He invented several themes that are now classic in science fiction works, such as The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds. When the Sleeper Wakes, 
and The First Men in the Moon. He wrote realistic novels that received critical acclaim, including Kips and a critique of English culture during the Edwardian period, Tono Bungay. Wells also wrote dozens of short stories and novellas, including The Flowering of the Strange Orchid, which helped bring the full impact of Darwin's revolutionary botanical ideas to a wider public, and was followed by many later successes such as The Country of the Blind. So he was quite a prolific writer. However, according to research historian James Gunn, one of Wells's major contributions to the science fiction genre was his approach, which he referred to as the new system of ideas. In his opinion, the author should always strive to make the story as credible as possible, even if both the writer and the reader knew certain elements are impossible allowing the reader to accept the ideas as something that really could happen. Today, we refer to it as plausible, impossible, and suspension of disbelief. While neither invisibility nor time travel was new in speculative fiction, Wells added a sense of realism to the concepts which the readers were not familiar with. He conceived the idea of using a vehicle that allows an operator to travel purposely and selectively forwards or backwards in time. The term time machine, coined by Wells, is now almost universally used to refer to such a vehicle. He explained that while riding the time machine, he realized that the more impossible the story I had to tell, the more ordinary must be the setting and the circumstances in which I now set the time traveler were all that I could imagine of solid, upper-class comforts. In Wells's Law, a science fiction story should contain only a single extraordinary assumption. Being aware of the notion of magic as something real had disappeared from society, he therefore used scientific ideas and theories as a substitute for magic to justify the impossible. Wells's best-known statement of the law appears in his introduction to a collection of his works published in 1934 in which he said, As soon as the magic trick has been done, the whole business of the fantasy writer is to keep everything else human and real. Touches of prosaic detail are imperative and a rigorous adherence to the hypothesis. Any extra fantasy outside the cardinal assumption immediately gives a touch of irresponsible silliness to the invention. Interesting idea. It kind of contradicts what they later ended up doing on Star Trek, where they broke the rules all the time and tried to explain things and make them plausible by throwing in some current event or something that people from the 20th century know and then something made up. Why it's an atrocity, like Hitler from the 20th century, or Googly Mai from Xenon 5. Thank you, H.G. Wells, for letting me speculate on horrible science fiction plots. I'm Bart, I'm your narrator and guide, and we are, in fact, getting to Chapter 7, How I Reached Home. And let's hope, for his sake, he didn't forget the bread and milk, because I know specifically she told him before he left the house 
to make sure he stopped at the store on the way home for bread and milk. But let's get on to our story, shall we? Give me the gift of a grip-top sock. That is enough. Chapter 7. How I Reached Home For my own part, I remember nothing of my flight except the stress of blundering against the trees and stumbling through the heather. All about me gathered the invisible terrors of the Martians. A pitiless sword of heat seemed whirling to and fro, flourishing overhead before it descended and smote me out of life. I came into the road between the crossroads and Horsel, and ran along this to the crossroads. At last I could go no further. I was exhausted with the violence of my emotion and of my flight, and I staggered and fell by the wayside. That was near the bridge that crosses the canal by the gasworks. I fell and lay still. I must have remained there some time. I sat up, strangely perplexed. For a moment, perhaps, I could not clearly understand how I came there. My terror had fallen from me like a garment. My hat had gone and my collar had burst away from its fastener. A few minutes before, there had only been three real things before me. The immensity of the night and space and nature. My own feebleness and anguish and the near approach of death. Now it was as if something turned over and the point of view altered abruptly. There was no sensible transition from one state of mind to the other. I was immediately the self of every day again, a decent, ordinary citizen. The silent common, the impulse of my flight, the starting flames, were as if they had been in a dream. I asked myself, had these latter things indeed happened? I could not credit it. I rose and walked unsteadily up the steep incline of the bridge. My mind was blank wonder. My muscles and nerves seemed drained of their strength. I dare say I staggered drunkenly. A head rose over the arch, and the figure of a workman carrying a basket appeared. Beside him ran a little boy. He passed me, wishing me good night. I was minded to speak to him, but did not. I answered his greeting with a meaningless mumble and went on over the bridge. Over the Mayberry Arch, a train, a billowing tumult of white firelit smoke and a long caterpillar of lighted windows went flying south. Clatter, clatter, clap, rap, and it had gone. A dim group of people talked in the gate of one of the houses in the pretty little row of gables that was called Oriental Terrace. 
It was all so real and so familiar. And that behind me, it was frantic, fantastic. Such things I told myself could not be. Perhaps I am a man of exceptional moods. I do not know how far my experience is common. At times I suffer from the strangest sense of detachment for myself and the world about me. I seem to watch it all from the outside. From somewhere inconceivably remote, out of time, out of space, out of the stresses and tragedy of it all. This feeling was very strong upon me that night. Here was another side to my dream. But the trouble was the blank incongruity of the serenity and the swift death lying yonder, not two miles away. There was a noise of business from the gasworks, and the electric lamps were all alight. I stopped at the group of people. What news from the common, said I. There were two men and a woman at the gate. Eh? said one of the men, turning. What news from the common, I said. Ain't you just been there? asked the man. People seem fairly silly about the common, said the woman over the gate. What's it all about? Haven't you heard of the men from Mars, said I. The creatures from Mars? Quite enough, said the woman over the gate. Thanks. And all three of them laughed. I felt foolish and angry. I tried and found I could not tell them what I had seen. They laughed again at my broken sentences. You'll hear more yet, I said, and went on to my home. I startled my wife at the doorway, so haggard was I. I went into the dining room, sat down, drank some wine, and so soon as I could collect myself sufficiently, I told her the things I had seen. The dinner, which was a cold one, had already been served and remained neglected on the table while I told my story. There is one thing, I said, to allay the fears I had aroused. There are the most sluggish things I ever saw crawl. They may keep the pit and kill people who come near them, but they cannot get out of it. But the horror of them... Don't, dear, said my wife, knitting her brows and putting her hand on mine. Poor Ogilvy, I said, to think he may be lying dead there. My wife, at least, did not find my experience incredible. When I saw how deadly white her face was, I ceased abruptly. They may come here, she said again and again. I pressed her to take wine and tried to reassure her. They can scarcely move, I said. I began to comfort her and myself by repeating all that Ogilvy had told me of the impossibility of the Martians establishing themselves on the earth. In particular, I laid stress on the gravitational difficulty. On the surface of the Earth, the force of gravity is three times what it is on the surface of Mars. A Martian, therefore, would weigh three times more than on Mars, albeit his muscular strength would be the same. His own body would be a cope of lead to him. That indeed was the general opinion. But the Times and the Daily Telegraph, for instance, insisted on it the next morning, 
and both overlooked, just as I did, two obvious modifying influences. The atmosphere of the Earth, we now know, contains far more oxygen, or far less argon, whichever way one likes to put it, than does Mars. The invigorating influences of this excess of oxygen upon the Martians indisputably did much to counterbalance the increased weight of their bodies. And in the second place, we all overlooked the fact that such mechanical intelligence as the Martian possessed was quite able to dispense with muscular exertion at a pinch. But I did not consider these points at the time, and so my reasoning was dead against the chances of the invaders. With wine and food, the confidence of my own table, and the necessity of reassuring my wife, I grew by insensible degrees, courageous and secure. They have done a foolish thing, said I, fingering my wine glass. They are dangerous because, no doubt, they are mad with terror. Perhaps they expected to find no living things, certainly no intelligent living things. A shell in the pit, said I, if the worst comes to worst. We'll kill them all. The intense excitement of the events had no doubt left my perceptive powers in a state of erethism. I remember that dinner table with extraordinary vividness even now. My dear wife's sweet, anxious face peering at me from under the pink lampshade, the white cloth with its silver and glass table furniture, for in those days even philosophical writers had many little luxuries. The crimson-purple wine in my glass are photographically distinct. At the end of it, I sat, tempering nuts with a cigarette, regretting Ogilvy's rashness, and denouncing the short-sighted timidity of the Martians. So some respectable dodo in the Mauritius might have lorded it in his nest and discussed the arrival of that ship full of pitiless sailors in want of animal food. We will peck them to death tomorrow, my dear. I did not know it, but that was the last civilized dinner I was to eat for very many strange and terrible days. So that's it for chapter 7 in book 1 of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, How I Reached Home. It's nice to know in the days before the internet that you're able to go home and have a glass of wine and a decent plate of pasta and forget all about the Martians two miles down the road, obliterating everybody in the streets that come even close. Because you know what? They're pretty doggone slow. And boy, have they done the wrong thing. Well, I guess we're going to find out what the Martians think about them having done the wrong or right thing. Thank you for joining me on Public Domain Playhouse's rendition of H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. This is Bart, your narrator and guide, saying, We'll see you in the next chapter. <laughs>